Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohid Malik and I spoke to Mark Silverstone, who is an Associate Professor in Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs. He also chairs the Miller Center's Presidential Recordings Program. Professor Silverstone joined us in December 2022 to discuss his new book, The Kennedy Withdrawal, Camelot and the American Commitment to Vietnam. So to start things off, could you give us a short overview of your new book, The Kennedy Withdrawal, Camelot and the American Commitment to Vietnam, and maybe talk a bit about what inspired you to write it? What I've produced is is not necessarily a comprehensive history of Kennedy in Vietnam, although I trace much of that history. And there are wonderful comprehensive histories of, of Kennedy in Vietnam available. Uh, actually, probably fewer than people would think. Uh, the story about Kennedy in Vietnam is certainly embedded in the comprehensive works on the United States in Vietnam, uh, as it's a central part of that. But what I was trying to get at was much more targeted, and that's this notion that the Kennedy administration was engaged in planning to withdraw the United States from the conflict by 1965. And that planning uh, was touched off in the summer of 1962 and lasted to pretty much the end of Kennedy's thousand days in office. And originally, I had wanted to just focus on that time period. But in order to tell the story of the withdrawal planning, I really needed to go back to the beginning of the administration to get a better sense of Kennedy's commitment to Vietnam and the nature of that commitment. So what I ended up doing was looking at that commitment through the the commitment to Vietnam, through the lens of Kennedy's interest in withdrawing from it. The study does not end uh, with Kennedy's assassination on the 22nd of November 1963, uh, since I wanted to tell the story of withdrawal uh, from soup to nuts, really. I needed to look at what happened to the withdrawal policy during the administration of Lyndon Johnson. So I carry the story into the early part of 1964 right up to the point where Johnson decides to fully drop that withdrawal planning in March of that year. The person who really drops that planning, though, is Robert McNamara, Johnson's Secretary of Defense, who is, of course, John F. Kennedy's Secretary of Defense. And one of my challenges in writing this book was to explore Kennedy's connection to the withdrawal plan, because a host of authors have made the case that it really was Kennedy's plan, that he was fully committed to realizing it, that it was a decision on his part that was irrevocable, that he was not to turn away from it, and that had he lived into 1964, uh, been nominated, of course, again, as he would have been for, for the Democratic Party as president, and then won his electoral contest, most likely against Barry Goldwater, that Kennedy would have pulled the United States out of Vietnam. And during the course of my research, uh, it became clear that the plan really was Bob McNamara's plan and that Kennedy's connection to it was really quite tenuous. So the cover of of the book, uh, which features a photo of, of Kennedy and McNamara in the Oval Office, 
uh, I think captures its essence pretty well because you see the two of them pouring over a paper with McNamara essentially instructing Kennedy in, in what he had proposed. And it reflects, I think, quite, uh, quite well uh, the nature of the planning, uh, authorship of the planning, and Kennedy's connection to it. Could you please set out what the political and military situation in Vietnam was like in the early 1960s and maybe talk a bit about the U.S.'s involvement? So when Kennedy becomes president in January of 1961, he is facing a burgeoning counterinsurgency, uh, one that had taken off in the last years of the Eisenhower administration. First, the United States had been supporting first prime minister and then President Godin Ziem of South Vietnam since uh, mid-1954, when uh, Ziem became prime minister in, uh, in the context of the Geneva Conference that settled the Franco-Viet Minh War, the war that had been lasting between the French and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, as well as the state of Vietnam, allied with, with France, uh, since late 1946. Uh, and it was at that point in, in 1954 that the United States became much more engaged in supporting this this newly emergent regime. Of course, the United States had been supporting the French effort significantly during the course of the war, uh, most concretely since 1950, and by 1954 was providing uh, roughly 80% of France's entire war expenditure on the effort. So the U.S. was very involved, uh, but it became uh, even more involved during the latter part of the decade after the French uh, essentially pulled out of Vietnam and by 1956, when the elections to unify these two regroupment zones, really, a northern Vietnam and a southern Vietnam, when those elections did not take place, the United States was really on the line to support uh, South Vietnam uh, economically, militarily, uh, providing a host of assistance so that the ZM regime could modernize its administrative structures. The United States had really been heavily involved. And during that time, ZM had set out to build his non-communist state at a time when there were uh, a number of stay-behind communist units left over from the war. Those units were engaged in political agitation, to be sure. Uh, they were there, especially to, uh, to try to support the coming plebiscite for 1956. But when that didn't emerge, they were fairly exposed. And Ziem had launched his Denounce the Communist campaign, which was really quite brutal and ultimately fairly indiscriminate, that turned more and more South Vietnamese against his regime. because communist numbers were dropping so precipitously, decisions were made in Hanoi to aid Southern communists more aggressively, not only in their political agitation, but now in their military agitation. And so by the end of the 1950s, uh, a, uh, a burgeoning war was emerging in Southern Vietnam between the forces of the South Vietnamese state and those of Vietnamese communists, whether they were uh, indigenous to the South or regroupies who had gone North and then come back down to the South, and then others still later, North Vietnamese, 
who would trek down the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, through Laos and into southern Vietnam, but then again through Laos into Cambodia, into southern Vietnam, to support the insurgency there. It is at the tail end of the Eisenhower administration, really during the interregnum period, between the Eisenhower and Kennedy presidencies, that the administrative structures for that insurgency are founded. Uh, the National Liberation Front uh, and its military arm, the People's Liberation Armed Forces, what came to be known as the Viet Cong, those are constituted. And that is what Kennedy faces when he becomes president. The $2 billion of aid that the United States had provided uh, to the Xi'an regime at that point were insufficient, clearly, in stemming whatever had remained of uh, the communist presence in South Vietnam that was that was only growing bigger. Xi'an's administrative challenges, which the United States had tried to work with him on, were uh, not resolved, certainly not to the satisfaction of, of American officials. And so it was an uneasy relationship as Kennedy became president. Those challenges, uh, military, political, economic, social, only grew during Kennedy's time in office. After Kennedy takes the oath of office on the 20th of January, 1961, he is confronted almost immediately with the nature of the challenge in South Vietnam. Uh, he receives a report written by Ed Lansdale, who had been a figure who had supported the ZM regime early in its existence. He had notable anti-communist successes in the Philippines and stemming a counterinsurgency there earlier. And the report that Lansdale writes, and that's handed to him uh, by one of his deputies on the National Security Council, Walt Rostow, is really quite alarming. And it highlights the great challenges facing the ZM regime that Lansdale pointed out were greater than those in some ways than what ZM faced back in 1954, 1955. Comparable challenges, but given that the intervening six years were supposed to really have have benefited ZM greatly and the regime, uh, it was clear to Lansdale that, that they were in trouble and the American project in South Vietnam was in trouble. So Kennedy gets quite alarmed. Uh, and as he says to Rostow, kind of in, in a rhetorical question, this is the worst one we've got yet. Uh, eh? uh, and, uh, and Rostow acknowledges that. So so Kennedy is very live to the challenges of, of Southeast Asia early in his administration. And it's not the only challenge, of course, that Kennedy faces at that time, because uh, in neighboring Laos, uh, a power sharing agreement between communist, non-communist and neutralist factions had broken down, leading many in the U.S. security establishment to recommend inserting U.S. combat troops uh, into the fray. Uh, which Kennedy rejects. Uh, and that's a feature, I think, of his presidency when he is frequently asked to insert uh, U.S. combat troops to, to take the military option. He declines to do so. Uh, but Kennedy does move toward trying to neutralize Laos to take it off the Cold War chessboard, which is one of the signal agreements between Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev uh, when they meet in Vienna in uh, in early in June 19, 1961. But it is a dicey time for the administration because it is taking um, a host of hits uh, in its foreign policy. 
uh, the failed Bay of Pigs adventure in, in April of 1961. The challenge is in Laos. This testy exchange with Khrushchev, uh, the construction of the Berlin Wall in August of 1961, uh, a tank crisis between U.S. and the Soviets in October of 1961. As Kennedy recognizes, it would be difficult for him to pull back from yet another Cold War challenge. And so Vietnam, as he says to New York Times com columnist James Reston, Vietnam is the place where the United States needs to stand in order to ensure its credibility with allies as well as adversaries around the world. And when in October of 1961, there are a series of incidents, particularly one in, in which the communists overrun the capital of a province, it looks even more dangerous than it had been in the past. And so that sparks a series of events which leads to a U.S. mission, fact-finding mission to South Vietnam. And when that mission reports back to Kennedy, recommending a sharply increased commitment to South Vietnam and the preservation of an independent non-communist South Vietnam, that's when Kennedy has to make his first major decisions on, on the matter. Um, I say really major because he had made some significant ones previously in May of 1961, following the Bay of Pigs, where he definitely augments the U.S. program. Uh, it's an augmentation that will allow the United States to provide more aid, more men, more military advisors, particularly special forces advisors to, to train the South Vietnamese special forces. But really, the big escalatory moment for the United States comes in October and November of 1961. And after that, the entire American presence in South Vietnam will change as the U.S. and South Vietnamese enter into what was called a limited partnership. So what were some of the factors that shaped President Kennedy's views on Vietnam while he was in Congress? And did these views change at all once he assumed the presidency? Kennedy had a really very subtle take on the challenges in Vietnam, which were not too dissimilar from some of the challenges elsewhere in the developing world for uh, states that had uh, been previously colonized and were moving toward independence uh, in the post-war era. Kennedy recognized the power of nationalism that was coursing through all of them. And he was particularly critical of the way that first the Truman administration and then the Eisenhower administration were handling uh, the challenge of, of Vietnamese independence in the course of this Franco-Vietnam War, in which what was really a political conflict was becoming overly militarized. And that would be Kennedy's theme, not only at the time, but I think that that persisted into his presidency, that the, the nature of the challenge in Vietnam was about political control and uh, and the sovereignty of 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 all of Vietnam, not just northern Vietnam and southern Vietnam, as it would be constituted subsequent to Geneva in 1964. So Kennedy understood, I think, the the dangers of of uh, using military tools to get at political problems, uh, and he was quite vocal about that. Uh, he was particularly live to these 
problems after visiting the region. So Kennedy had some experience. He had toured Southeast Asia in 1951 in advance of launching or in the context of launching a bid to unseat Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a sitting senator from Massachusetts. And Kennedy wins that contest and so enters uh, the Senate in, in 1953. And it's from that position that Kennedy speaks out more supportively of uh, the the new South Vietnamese regime uh, when it comes into being in 1954. Kennedy is very bullish on Godin Ziem. Uh, as a member of the American Friends of Vietnam, an important uh, American lobby for Vietnam, Kennedy speaks out uh, at dinners. He'll speak out in Congress. Uh, he really makes the case that, as he would say, Vietnam is is the finger in the dike. It is the keystone in the arch. It is holding back the tide of of communism in Southeast Asia, and we really needed to rally and 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 support it. And that is again a a, a theme that that we see throughout the rest of of the nineteen fifties. And uh, in many ways, Kennedy only deepens his engagement and his commitment to Vietnam as he becomes candidate for national office as he's thinking about the presidency. So whereas Kennedy looks at Vietnam and the challenges of independence through the subtle eye, recognizing that there's a connection between nationalism and the uh, communist movement throughout uh, East Asia, as there was, I think that his, his interest in higher elective office um, perhaps encourages him to take uh, a slightly darker view of what is going on in Southeast Asia and becomes more committed to an anti-communist posture because of the demands of elective office in the United States in the Cold War era. And that's certainly what he rides to the presidency in 1961, as in some respects, he is positioning himself to the right of the Republicans certainly with regard to the American uh, defense posture, uh, claiming that there has been a missile gap that's developed because of the Republicans' inattention to the strategic balance, tarring the Republicans with their inability to turn things around in Cuba after Fidel Castro came to power in 1959, and his concern about communism in Southeast Asia, I think is, is part of a piece with all of that. So, so Kennedy enters the Oval Office as a committed Cold Warrior, as supportive of the South Vietnamese regime, uh, and he remains uh, both throughout his presidency, even though we can talk about some, um, some flexibility in his approach. That said, there is also a skepticism, I think, that runs through Kennedy's appreciation of what's possible in South Vietnam, recognizing that ZM's popularity might not be uh, what, what it would need to be uh, for him to command the allegiance of the South Vietnamese public, and the problems that poses in gaining their fealty in a contest in which they are pitted against a seemingly much more committed and cohesive North Vietnam 
bent on unifying the country, as many had had understood. If there was to be an election in 1956, Ho Chi Minh undoubtedly would have won that. And Ho's popularity as a true nationalist is something that that the U.S. uh, and Ziem are going to have to confront. How would you describe the relationship between President Kennedy and his Secretary of Defense, Robert S. McNamara? Did they see eye to eye on Vietnam and the potential withdrawal? Kennedy and McNamara on Vietnam, uh, especially early in in the administration, and by early I mean 1961 and, and not 1963, I th- I think there were some uh, some real divisions between the two, not necessarily on on the importance of America's role in assisting the South Vietnamese government, but how assiduously the United States should support the South Vietnamese. And by that, I mean that in the fall of 1961, after this fact-finding mission goes over to South Vietnam, a fact-finding mission that's headed by Kennedy's uh, special military representative, Maxwell Taylor, as well as by Walt Rostow, the number two at the National Security Council, the report that Taylor delivers calls for uh, 8,000 combat troops to be inserted. It calls for the United States to enter into this limited partnership. And it calls for Kennedy to make a pledge, really, to fully commit the United States to the preservation of an independent, non-communist South Vietnam. And McNamara supports that. Along with Secretary of State Dean Rusk, McNamara will also make the case that When the United States implements this new program to bolster South Vietnam, it might become so provocative to both Beijing and Moscow that they themselves will become more involved in the contest and therefore perhaps involve as many as 205,000 American troops. So McNamara and Rusk and others are really calling on Kennedy to face the prospect of dramatically escalating the U.S. commitment uh, early on in the presidency, the the end of of his first year in office. And Kennedy resists that. Kennedy doesn't want to insert combat troops. In fact, the the 8,000 troops that uh, Taylor is calling for, Kennedy rejects. Uh, There will be military advisors who go in. And the ruse at the time is that they're to go in to help mitigate the uh, the effects of a really awful flood that had taken place in South Vietnam and had displaced hundreds of thousands and killed livestock and and, and whatnot. Uh, but that these are military advisors who are just supposed to help the South Vietnamese learn the processes and techniques of counterinsurgency more effectively. They're not to go in as integrated combat units uh, and do the fighting themselves, Uh, nor will the United States make this uh, commitment pledge that McNamara and Russ were, were pushing. So it is a limited commitment, and Kennedy needs to talk McNamara down from that which he does successfully, and McNamara fully gets on board with what the president wants. And that's, I think, the key to their relationship, that McNamara really is the implementer of Kennedy's design. It's the case here at the end of 1961, uh, when uh, 
Kennedy's uh, major presidential program gets up and running. And it's also the case with respect to withdrawal. So how is it that McNamara comes to the position of advocating for and directing that the United States military and diplomatic establishment begin to consider the feasibility of withdrawing American troops from Vietnam so soon after uh, inserting those troops as advisors again in 1962. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, MACV, the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, which is this new structure that gets uh, that stood up in February of that year, headed by a four-star general and not a three-star general that had previously run the Military Assistance Advisory Group, within three months of this happening, and thousands of more American advisors going in, there had only been 685 at the outset of Kennedy's presidency, but by the end of 1961, there are over 3,000, and then by the end of 62, over 9,000, and by the end of Kennedy's presidency, over 16,700. How is it that only three months after those troops really start to stream in, McNamara directs the head of MACV, Paul Harkins, to think about a plan for taking them out? According to McNamara, it's based upon the administration's public statements that Kennedy in April of that year had expressed a desire to pull back from the American commitment if the other side did the same, the other side here really meaning North Vietnam, we would be happy to lessen our commitment if they agreed to pull back on, on uh, the predations that were taking place in South Vietnam, which the Americans presumed were North Vietnamese sponsored and not necessarily emerging from communists who were indigenous to South Vietnam, which is another interesting part of the story. But McNamara hears Kennedy making these kinds of noises. But in any case, I believe that we will be able to get it under control. It may take uh, two years or three years, possibly. But we should now be looking to the time when we'll have a normal military program there. Instead, they're proposing fantastic military assistance programs. Uh, I think we ought to take 75 to 100 million out of the 65, 66, 67 military assistance programs they're talking about and be looking to a normal relationship so we don't build up another Korea. When I look at what's happened to Korea in the way of, of U.S. aid and how difficult it's going to be to scale that aid down, we certainly don't want to let a, another Korea develop in South Vietnam, and we're well on the way to doing that. So I, this was one of my major points of yesterday. And secondly, I think that, as I mentioned before, that both for domestic political purposes and also because of the psychological effect it would have in South Vietnam, we ought to think about the possibility of bringing a thousand men home by the end of the year. I've asked them to lay out that plan without at the present time making any decision to That's right, put it in effect. If it isn't in very good shape, you don't want to make it. Absolutely not. It would be, uh, have a negative influence. But on the other hand, if we've had two or three victories, this would be just exactly the shot in the arm we ought to have. So they're, they're going to do that. We're having great difficulty on our budget in the Congress. There is also an intervention from British counterinsurgency specialist uh, Robert Thompson, Sir Robert Thompson, who had gained fame in Malaya for stanching a communist insurgency there. When Thompson comes to the United States in April of 1962 and encourages the U.S. not only to put a cap on the numbers going into Vietnam, but to reverse their flow 
to make a kind of token withdrawal because that will provide an indication not only to the Americans that this commitment has limits to it, it's bounded, but an indication to the South Vietnamese that we believe in your capacity to win this war on your own, and an indication to to Hanoi as well that we believe in Hanoi's capacity to win. The conjunction of these two events, Kennedy's comments, but also the recommendations of uh, Thompson, push McNamara to consider the feasibility or the wisdom, really, of, of starting to think about how these troops come out of there after going in. And in many ways, it's consistent with how McNamara was running the Pentagon. In some respects, Vietnam was another Pentagon program, each of which had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And in the context of planning that McNamara was doing that took a much longer time horizon for realizing these Pentagon programs based upon practices that McNamara had brought in from the corporate world uh, where he had really made his mark, uh, it made sense to schedule inputs and outputs more effectively. And that's essentially what this plan did. Of course, it recognized realities in Vietnam and Kennedy's interest in scaling down an American involvement uh, when possible. But it also really dovetailed with a lot of McNamara's objectives in programs that he ran through the Defense Department. And so that planning really gets kicked off in July of 1962. The first such plan is put together and presented to a wider variety of folks in the defense and, st and diplomatic establishments in January of 63. It gets refined during the course of the spring and summer, and it finally will get presented to Kennedy in the fall of 1963. So what are some of the reasons that scholars offer to support the claim that Kennedy would have pursued American withdrawal from Vietnam? How valid do you think these arguments are? Kennedy, as, as I alluded to earlier, was in some respects skeptical of the, of the virtues of staying in this fight and the ability for the United States and uh, the Xiem regime to, to win in the end, to sufficiently command control of all of South Vietnam's territory. And by you know, the end of 1963, South Vietnam was in all respects um, a, a constituted state, even though that's not, not how it came into existence, right? Because the elections that were supposed to take place in, in 56 never really took place. This state of this um, Republic of Vietnam emerged. So as a skeptic on Vietnam, on the ability really of, of certainly formerly colonial regimes or former colonial regimes as well as the West, to stanch the nationalist impulses that were coursing through the developing world, Kennedy wondered about the ability to, to wall off these forces of history. And he certainly was dubious of doing so through military means. Um, he was reluctant to insert 
American forces in any overt way, certainly, uh, and in much of any capacity, really, in April of 1961, when things were going south in Cuba, he was very reluctant to do so in Laos. And we know that he opted for uh, a neutralized Laos through diplomacy. He was reluctant to uh, do much of anything really seriously to threaten the East Germans or the Soviets after the construction of the Berlin Wall. Sure, he sent Lucius Clay over and, uh, and uh, a column of, of American vehicles, tanks and others rolled into uh, East Germany as they could, uh, according to the four power agreement that was um, that was established after World War II about how Berlin um, and Germany, the two Germanys are to be governed. Uh, and Kennedy was reluctant to insert American combat troops into Vietnam. So there's a, a large body of evidence to suggest that Kennedy was really reluctant to militarize these conflicts uh, when at root, particularly in, in the developing world in, in South Vietnam, they were largely uh, political in nature. And uh, there uh, are many reasons to believe, I think, that because of his skepticism and because of his, his reluctance to, to uh, insert military force or to use military force, that those instincts would have prevailed uh, through 1964 and into 1965. That doesn't mean that Kennedy would have shrunk from some type of military operations, which of course were taking place during the course of 61 and 62, with the United States participating in many of those. In fact, the administration took a whole lot of heat for the undeclared war that was going on with the use of United States men on the ground, as well as in the air, and through the use of covert operations with uh, US assets ferrying South Vietnamese commandos north of the 17th parallel, uh, operations that only grew in scope over the course of, of Kennedy's presidency. And it's reasonable to conclude that those operations would have persisted into 1964. Even Kennedy's most ardent admirers don't think that he would have pulled the United States out in the course of an election campaign. So likely those operations would have con continued. Kennedy showed no discomfort really with them. And so the question becomes what would have happened after Kennedy was elected again, presumably in 1965? How would he have supported the South Vietnamese uh, when its government was increasingly under siege, when the communists were occupying larger swaths of the countryside? Uh, what are his options um, to continue to do more of the same, to reverse course, to go bigger? Uh, I, I find it difficult to believe that he would have chosen to do what LBJ did and place 500,000 or more American troops in South Vietnam. That just doesn't seem to be consistent with, with what he had been doing during his thousand days in office. And it doesn't seem to be consistent with his overall understanding of, of these kinds of, of, uh, of challenges, the challenges of the development decade, as he referred to the 1960s. 
But it's plausible also to think that Kennedy would have continued to support covert operations, might well have considered uh, an enclave strategy of holding strong points within South Vietnam and making sure that those areas were cleared and held and that communists were were prevented from infiltrating them with the hope of perhaps expanding those enclaves kind of in an oil spot fashion, perhaps until they could have been linked up and more of the country could have been, to use the word at the time, pacified. But again, that that is a, a guess and and we we can't really know. But it is consistent with the rhetoric that he used during his time in office, which contrary to to many who believe that that Kennedy uh, would absolutely have pulled out, that rhetoric suggests that he was fully committed to the fight. Again and again, Kennedy said, we cannot desist in Vietnam. We need to stay there. There are those who call for the United States to pull out. I disagree. I don't think we should do that. And he makes that quite clear in a televised interview on Labor Day 1963 with the CBS news anchor, Walter Cronkite. As news stations were moving from a 15-minute broadcast to the 30-minute broadcast that's, that's, remain, that's popular now and, and, and had been because of, of this transition, in that conversation on September 2nd, 1963, Kennedy makes it clear that while he is concerned about Vietnam, concerned about the political situation as a result of the Buddhist crisis during the summer of 1963, uh, he believes that the United States should remain. And so there is this tension in Kennedy's position, there, this ambivalence of not wanting to militarize a political conflict, of being perhaps skeptical of the ZM regime and the ability to fully prevail in South Vietnam, and yet at the same time of the dangers of not staying in Vietnam. And it's a tension that, that he or Johnson later um, were, were able to resolve. So why do you think there is a strong interest among historians and political commentators to explore what President Kennedy may have done in Vietnam had he not met his untimely death and actually won re-election? Vietnam was such a trauma. Uh, and, and I would start by saying it is, of course, uh, a trauma most concretely and directly for those who lived in Southeast Asia and who bore the brunt of the fighting for 30 years, from 1945, certainly through 1975, the, the three million who died, the lands that were ravaged and which unexploded ordnance remain. And when we speak about the traumas of the war, that has to be front and center. But it certainly became a, a political trauma for the United States, as well as something much more so for the over 58,000 Americans who did not come back alive from Vietnam, those who were permanently disabled as a result of the war, and of course, those who were psychologically traumatized by the war, as well as those connected to them, their families, uh, associates. It was really quite a difficult time for the United States because beyond those very personal effects and impacts, it drew a line between Americans at home and the way they thought about their government 
in the way that they understood authority, in the way that they understood America's role in the world. The culture wars in many ways uh, in the latter part of the decade, I think, emerged out of these concerns and recriminations that grew up over who or what was responsible for the loss in Vietnam uh, and the black eye that it gave to the United States. It was really such a, a traumatic moment for the United States that if it could have been avoided, and if Kennedy had li lived and been able to see out his withdrawal plan, maybe the course of, of American history, of world history, would have been different. And with Kennedy being such an attractive figure, somebody who uh, pledged to get the country moving again, uh, who was committed to realizing a positive mission for the United States and the world through a variety of measures, through the Peace Corps, which was incredibly inspiring to young Americans, as Kennedy represented this new generation of Americans born in the 20th century, uh, many of whom served in a junior capacity during World War II, now risen to positions of prominence, Kennedy himself being a physically attractive figure with an attractive wife, an attractive family, representing perhaps the best of what America had to offer, with him cut down in the prime of his life, with his presidency being unfinished, with many of the programs that Lyndon Johnson put into place and realized with respect to education and civil rights and the environment, with many of these being Kennedy-era programs, perhaps he himself could have seen them through, and even not with the rancor that ultimately developed in the latter Johnson years with respect to some of those domestic programs. Perhaps Kennedy might have set us on a path that would have allowed the country to remain more cohesive than it was in the latter part of the 1960s, when it was very divided. Much of that, uh, people surmise, uh, was the result of the transition from the Kennedy to the Johnson presidencies, and particularly revolving around the decisions in Vietnam, with Johnson allegedly reversing the Kennedy policy of withdrawal and Americanizing the war that Kennedy would never have Americanized, or at least not in that way. Of course, on the other side, there is the question of how Kennedy himself would have addressed the withdrawal policy that, that emerged uh, during his own presidency. And it's my sense, as, as I alluded to earlier, that Kennedy probably would have stuck with some type of effort to continue to support the South Vietnamese, but that he would have done so and would have pulled out only in the context of American military success. And one of the great virtues of the Kennedy White House tapes, which I think are very important to the story, is that you can hear Kennedy talking about Vietnam and the disposition of American forces in ways that don't come through really or not as dramatically in the textual evidence. 
that we get through memoranda generated by various people in the State Department or, or uh, the Defense Department or, or wherever. Uh, Kennedy is clearly indicating that this withdrawal program, which he supports, is likely to be effective uh, from a public opinion standpoint with the American people only if it can be implemented in the context of military success. If it looks like the United States is losing, it would seem nonsensical to pull out U.S. troops, especially given all that Kennedy had said about the virtues of remaining in South Vietnam. So for Kennedy, this withdrawal seems to be a conditions-based withdrawal, at least up through, let's say, 1965. And after that, I think there are some other questions with Kennedy you know, not having to face the voters again. At the same time, his brother, Robert Kennedy, the sitting attorney general, might have been the one to run again for the Democratic nomination in 1968. And how Bobby would have dealt with a potential United States decision to let South Vietnam go under, would that have been politically sustainable for him? That, of course, is a major question. And so that also needs to be factored into JFK's decision to pull back in South Vietnam if they ever had to face that on his watch uh, after winning a second term. In your book, you make use of President Kennedy's White House tapes. Can you talk a bit about these tapes and their usefulness to academics and others nearly 60 years later? I think it's hard to write the history of the Kennedy presidency or really of the Johnson and Nixon presidencies without the use of the White House tapes. They provide uh, a virtually unfiltered view of what happens in the Oval Office, of how policy is made and how power is used, really in ways that textual documents uh, and even sometimes oral histories can't quite approximate. Because you're hearing policy made in real time. You hear the feints, the paths that policymakers start to go down, and then they reverse themselves. You hear the assumptions behind the questions people ask, as well as the conclusions that they draw. I uh, feel that we must bear a good deal of responsibility for it, beginning with our of early August, in which we suggested the coup. Period, in my judgment, that wire was badly drafted. Comment should never have been sent on a Saturday. I uh, should not have given my consent to it without a roundtable conference in which McNamara and Taylor could have presented their views. While we did redress that balance in later wires, that, that first wire encouraged large along the course to which he was, in any case, inclined. And assumptions and conclusions and arguments that aren't always recorded faithfully in the memoranda of these conversations. There are numerous times when we have found instances of meeting memoranda written by participants, as they were supposed to be, uh, that are somewhat at odds with the actual developments uh, or the actual proceedings of the meetings themselves. There are also meetings for which 
there were no written memoranda that were particularly important meetings. And we have tapes of them. In fact, one of them is a particularly crucial meeting from October of 1963, when Kennedy first hears, I think, in the most fulsome way of this plan to remove the United States from Vietnam by 1965. There's no written memoranda of that meeting. And so the tapes, I think, are, are utterly indispensable uh, in that regard. And they also humanize the players. Uh, you can hear, particularly in that tape, Robert McNamara say, we need a way to get out of Vietnam and to leave forces there when they're not needed is wasteful and it complicates both their problems and ours. tone that he uses is really quite striking, seeing that it comes from somebody who only six months later or eight months later will welcome this war being known as McNamara's War. So it adds to the richness of the documentary base that we have to try to reconstruct these events and to come to a better understanding, uh, particularly in Vietnam, of how that policy was made what people thought of it at the time, and then we can triangulate with other sources as well to then reconstruct it um, most faithfully. How do you think President Kennedy would have acted during the debates on whether the United States should invade Iraq if he was in public office in the early 2000s? Do you think he would have been reticent about it or, like many politicians at the time, raring to go? I, I think that Kennedy seemingly tried to exhaust all options, diplomatic options before using the much more blunt tool of military force. And we can see that in a host of, of episodes, the episodes from 1961 that I had mentioned, Cuba, Laos, Berlin, but then particularly you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, where Kennedy and his advisors initially reached for the military option. They talked about uh, bombing the sites and, uh, and ultimately invading because they couldn't be sure that they would get all the missiles. But time and again, the president, and he was very much a minority in this regard, wanted to exhaust diplomacy at all costs, really, before deciding to push the button and launch military strikes on Cuba. And he took that position even after it was clear that the Cubans and the Soviets had ramped up their own military activities, shooting not only at low-level U.S. reconnaissance aircraft, 
but shooting down an American U-2 flyer, resulting in the only, well, there were more deaths because of, of, of an accident elsewhere, but this was the, the death as a result of a hostile act at the most dangerous moment of the crisis in October, on October 27, 1962. And still, Kennedy decides not to fire back. And even with the military pushing him hard and the planning going underway to launch a, uh, an American military operation, probably within 48 hours of October 27, that, that very difficult night, Kennedy in his back pocket essentially had a diplomatic maneuver where he was going to ask Utant, Secretary General of the United Nations, to propose a mutual withdrawal of Soviet missiles from Cuba and U.S. missiles from Turkey and Italy, which Kennedy very likely then would have accepted. Uh, and we know that it played a role privately in discussions between the U.S. and the Soviets. But he was, uh, according to Dean Rusk, who tells the story, um, he was partial to this idea of Utant calling for a public trade uh, and that because Utant did it, Kennedy would have would have agreed to it because it would have forestalled um, a military engagement. And who knows where that would have gone? I say that because you know, diplomacy was an option in late 2002 and into 2003. And you think about Colin Powell at the United Nations and the case to be made about whether the UN should sanction the use of force uh, against Saddam Hussein. And, you know, you got to wonder if Kennedy had been president, would he have continued to push for diplomacy really at all costs? It doesn't seem as though all options, all diplomatic options were exhausted in the run up to the war itself, given the assumptions that people were making about Saddam and his harboring of, of these weapons uh, of, of mass destruction. Uh, it seems to be the case that, uh, that the proponents of a military strike uh, were better positioned and more successful than the opponents of it. Now, the Kennedy example gets bandied about in the press at this very moment, because in October of, of 2002, when Congress is debating the Iraq resolution to give Bush essentially a blank check to go to war, it's the 40th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And every 10 years, of course, we have a, a replay of, of what went right and what went wrong. And so the Kennedy example is being used at that moment. So people are talking about Kennedy's qualities of discernment, prudence, judgment that are most valuable in, in any chief executive, but particularly in a, in a president of the United States. And what would Jack have done if that was the question, right? There is... There was some talk at the time that Bush would have should have followed Kennedy's lead. I say that because this is something uh, this is what I address in the epilogue, because the Kennedy story with respect to not just Vietnam, but the way he handled a lot of these conflicts is 
really important to the narrative of the use of American force abroad in the 2000s. And, it, and it, uh, it's important not just for the Iraq story, but for the Afghanistan story for Barack Obama later on. Um, the most important decisions that Obama makes about Afghanistan uh, take place in the fall of his first year at pretty much the very same time that Kennedy is making his most important decisions about Vietnam. And people, again, are calling for Obama to kind of channel JFK. Frank Rich, who was a key columnist for The New York Times at the time, called this uh, Obama's Kennedy-esque moment. And many people were suggesting that here's Obama who might be able to forestall a, a larger American commitment to Afghanistan, putting in more troops, and to do what Kennedy was unable to do, uh, but which he planned to do which was to pull the United States out of an unwinnable war. And so they used the Kennedy withdrawal as a template, really, for, for what Obama might have done. And my sense is that while uh, the missile crisis in many ways and its emphasis on prudence and discernment and judgment is really important, the template that Kennedy's withdrawal planning provides is not as clear-cut as one might like, because when Kennedy embraces withdrawal planning, he does it for much more complicated ends, particularly for domestic political ends, as well as what it might have to do with supporting American efforts and really South Vietnamese efforts on the ground in South Vietnam. So I don't think that the Kennedy withdrawal itself is a great model for how uh, chief executives should handle the really daunting challenges of counterinsurgency and trying to, to get your patron to fight in ways that uh, may run against a variety of dynamics uh, for them locally. But you know the Kennedy example writ large, and particularly through the missile crisis, yeah, I think I think there are some lessons there, not backing your adversary into a corner, keeping the conversation going, uh, exhausting diplomacy uh, at all costs, so on and so forth. Um, with the caveat, and I'll stop here, with the caveat that we know that Khrushchev decided to create the missiles and to return them to the Soviet Union before he heard the message that the United States was willing to, quote unquote, trade those missiles in Turkey. It helped to sweeten the deal, but it was Khrushchev's real fear of the conflict spiraling out of control that led him to tell the, the presidium that essentially the game was up. Mark Silverstone is Associate Professor in Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs. He chairs the Miller Center's Presidential Recordings Program. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor Mark Silverstone for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohit Malik, and Anderson Tan. Archival audio is courtesy of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum, and the presidential speeches hosted by the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. Our theme tune is by Ranger in the Rear Rangers, Seattle-based Gypsy Jazz Band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. 
We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ic.uk or you can send us a tweet at lsc underscore us. And please tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing US Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.